0: My name is Dr. Tram Jones, and since 2019, my wife and I have been living in Haiti. This is the story of our life there and the patients we've seen. Today on the podcast, we're going to have something a little different. We're going to be doing our first interview. Today, we'll be interviewing Colton Parks. Now, Colton is a good friend of mine. We've been friends for over a decade, but more importantly, he spent 2019 and 2020 living in Kigali, Rwanda, working for Hope International, specifically focusing on savings and microloans. He graduated from the University of Georgia with a degree in international affairs and is currently almost finished with a master's in international development. At this moment, he works for World Vision over their Latin America emergency response portfolio. Okay, Colton, well, let's begin. I just want to hear about you a little bit personally. Tell me about your time in Rwanda, and I think it's interesting because obviously we lived in Haiti while you lived in Rwanda, and living in a developing country is a little different wherever you are. It's not all one basket. Yeah, um, so Aaron and I moved to Rwanda in
1: 2019 um, for me to work with Hope International uh, as a communications fellow. Um, so Aaron, my wife had lived in Kenya, um, but this was both of our first times to Rwanda. So we kind of went in, um, with some expectations, but not many. And it was also, um, kind of my first launch into,
0: um, savings groups in microfinance just as a concept. And, you know, I think that's a lot of what we want to talk about today because we, we're just trying to talk about business in the developing world, which is a broad, broad topic, but I wanted to get you on because... This is what you've, you've done a good bit of. So to start off with, tell us the basic problems for poor people in developing nations in regards to accessing capital or saving. I mean, what, what, where are the rubs? I'd say the rubs, um, I mean, there's been a lot of
1: like literature and buzz around microfinance in the last couple decades. Um, you know, it's a big thing started in Bangladesh and has really um, caught on and is, is extremely effective. However, I think what people miss is that microfinance only catches um, a very small top percentage of people, Um, and the reality of Rwanda, at least, is uh, Rwanda is eighty-five percent agriculturalists, rural farmers living outside the city. You know, forty-five to fifty percent of the global population lives in rural areas, Mm. um, which is very limiting in terms of. you know, starting businesses or, or, you know, having that network available. So what savings groups does is catches that, that massive percentage of people that, that, you know, wouldn't quite need a full microloan. Um, Microloans tend to be anywhere from a couple hundred dollars to $5,000. Uh, and savings groups are for the people that aren't trying to, you know, to get loans that big. They need anywhere from $10 to $50 for their needs. Gotcha.
0: Outside of access to banks, what do you think makes saving for the poor difficult? I mean, is it that there are so many urgent short-term needs or, or what, what exactly is it? It's definitely that there are so many short-term urgent
1: needs. Um, additionally, saving as a concept um, is, is just kind of a luxury in a lot of the developing world. Generally, when expenses tend to, to measure higher than income, um, or even if you're breaking even, saving is not a priority, um, much in the same way it would be for us. If, if, mm. if our, you know, our daily or monthly costs were higher than what
0: we're making, we're, we're not going to put money away. Like um, if, our, if our kid can't go to school, we're probably not saving for retirement. Exactly. Retire- <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> exactly. Simply.
1: Uh, and that's the way that things have been. I mean, we use the term subsistence farming uh, or subsistence lifestyles. And that's exactly, I mean, that, that is just, that means you're just getting by. Right. Um, and saving, introducing the concept of saving is is um, is interesting because you have to, you know, at least from my perspective, we had to get people on board. Yeah. Um, it's also interesting that different cultures handle money in such different ways. Um, money in the developing world just tends to be more fluid. Uh, family networks and communal networks are deeper, uh, and people are much more inclined to to give money and to provide for their neighbors. Um, Mm. before they would save so in that sense um people are not only susceptible to their own needs so if if they were to break even or get ahead saving would still not be the priority if someone close to them had needs that were not met Mm. um so maybe even outside the nuclear family you know you would you would address a neighbor's or or a, a church member's need before your own um and that obviously does not lend itself
0: well to um building up a pretty solid nest egg. And and it seems very, you know, I mean, obviously there's a lot of generous people in the U.S., but we often think about giving after we've saved for retirement or or at least in tandem. Right. Exactly.
1: And so, yeah, and and as the case with all of us, savings comes at the expense of something else. Right. You know, and so when you're in a context where... There's not much margin. Where you're subsisting with very little margin, savings are hard. And so the idea of savings groups allows um, people to come together and to lean on each other. And, uh, and I think that is, is really the only way that savings could work. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. That makes sense. And, and so I think you, you touched on what, what I think is like the biggest thing, at least from what I see saw in Haiti, which is the psychological aspect or the social aspect of there's a different view of money, but what about banks is getting, Challenging to get a checking account, savings account, just a place to store the cash.
1: Yeah, again, you know, my job in Rwanda was to interview savings group members. And mm-hmm. one of the um, kind of templated questions that I had was, had, had you ever had savings before joining a savings group? Gotcha. And I don't have uh, a hard number for you, but I would say that, that almost, you know, nine out of 10 said they had never had savings before. So first of all, it's, wow. not, a, it's not a standard for yes. people, and again, eighty five percent of that country being rural farmers, um, you have to realize that banks don't have brick and mortars, you right. know, within access. So yes. even somewhere five to six miles outside a village is going to be kind of like your your standard um, radius for how long, how far people are willing to travel. Yeah, you can't even get to it. Yeah, so, yeah, so it's it really sense. just it's not just access to capital; it's access to banking. Right.
0: Okay, so I want to I want to tell you my understanding between savings groups and microfinance because just to make sure that we're i'm speaking the right language so my understanding from a savings group like everybody from the village they're putting their money in like 10 people in a group and then they loan out to their members at an interest rate maybe four percent for the month and then after a year the whole group gets their money back but they've loaned out a bunch of different ones and all that compounds i mean is that kind of the idea. Right. So the money that's being put in all year round from a group
1: of say 10 is growing in interest as each member gets a loan. Okay. And so that return keeps coming, like that, that return is stored up over time. And so I remember one share out where, um, the act like each, each member of that group had a 33% return on interest. Gotcha. Which is absolutely absurd. Right. I think right. about it. Like I would love to have that return.
0: Um, and, and then for microfinance you've kind of, you've got a bank actually, that's providing the money this time. This is different from a savings loan, right? Yes. Okay. And so they're putting it in, but like, what happens if you default? Like, how does that work?
1: So the way the micro micro loans work, at least at our microfinance institutions is that, um, you know, the, the, the money is lent to a group. So you're in a, a loans group. Okay. So say 10 people, I guess. Yeah. So say, let's, let's say again, it's 10 people. Um, and your performance on your loan, your ability to repay it, your ability to stay on track directly affects everyone else. So say the loan uh, is $1,000 to the group and a group of 10, each person is taking $100 of that for their approved business plan. Okay. If one member defaults, then that burden is then placed on the other nine. So they all have to make up that $100. They do. And so it uh, it's an accountability mechanism that not only protects um, – default loans or default rates from, from going high. But, uh, it's another measure to make sure that people are, are, are keeping their nose on the
0: grindstone. Yeah. That's, that's smart. So it sounds like these savings groups, I mean, and, and I've heard of this in different places. We have our own version in Haiti that's called a soul. I mean, it almost sounds like they're creating their own bank.
1: Essentially, like, it's, it's like a mini bank. It's a savings and loan account essentially. Okay. And, uh, and the beauty of it too, is that, um, there's a built-in accountability mechanism. So, um, you know, not only are you, you know, you you have a loan of your neighbor's money. You see them every day. You live next door to them. Uh, and it, Trust. Yeah, there's a lot of trust. And within our microfinance um, department, I think the repayment rate was 98%. Wow. Um, and so it's it's not even, uh, you know, it's not even a high-risk loan from the groups because, you know, either you're going to get it paid back or... I guess you just, you You know, we're going to (laughs) find (laughs) them.
0: Yeah. Um, So tell me about like who, who would take out these loans? I mean, in terms of who's the typical person taking out, participating in a savings group and who's the typical person participating in microfinance per chance?
1: Yeah, I think it's important to, um, (laughs) to kind of turn the idea on its head that like, there's a misconception, I think that microfinance is for you know, only for people that are you know, trying to start businesses um, or using, using you know, loans to start revenue genera- generating activities. Um, micro loans in general are for people starting businesses, but the savings groups and the access to capital that savings groups provides. And again, savings groups are applicable to 85% of the Rwandan population. Mm, a lot. Um, those 85% of people are not going to have any kind of need for a micro loan. Right. unless they are one of the ones that are trying to start a business which is not everybody which so is not it's everybody. like a minority of people yeah I think it's important to remember that not everyone is an entrepreneur and that need for need and access to capital in terms of just lump sums um, spans the gamut so anybody who needs to pay medical insurance who needs to pay school fees who needs to um, stock up on fertilizer those aren't necessarily businesses those are just that's just need for a lump sum. And for populations that don't have savings to dip into to be able to pay those and need lump sums all at once, this is pretty much
0: the only source of being able to get that. And these aren't people that are saying, you know, I want to go out and buy a new car. These are people who are, you know, every year maybe they have a bigger bigger expense, but they don't have the means to save up for that bigger expense. I exactly. Guess. Okay. So it really fits
1: that middle that middle ground between needing a loan, but uh, but not you know
0: having a business that you're you know, building out. Right. And no one's being predatory here because you're only lending to people who are also putting money in, right? You're all part of the same group. So the point is not to, you know, punish anyone here or make make too much interest. Right. It's self-generated access. Yeah. So the developed world, things seem to often be done for us. I, I often think like you start a job, you just click a little button and your 401k goes out, your pension goes out and I feel like that's in a lot of different areas. Like even in medicine, we don't have to make a choice about drinking clean water. It just comes out of the, of the faucet. You don't have a choice about it. But in the developing world, it feels often like you have to make these choices. And we often don't even have to think uh-huh. about savings. It's like done for us. Uh-huh. Social security is like you don't have a choice. Right. Okay. And okay. here they have to make a choice about every difficult decision yeah. in their lives. Okay. So, yeah, like I kind of said, or I mentioned
1: before savings is a luxury that comes at the expense of covering different costs. Um, you know, there is a whole myriad of, of expenses that any given family has, whether it's school fees, shoes, clothes for the kids, uh, fertilizer, transport, transportation of their, you know, crops to the market. And, uh, and savings, as you can guess, generally comes last after all those things mm-hmm. are covered. Like if you're, if you're sacrificing paying your kids' school fees in order to um, to buy seeds for the upcoming you know harvest year, um, then you're not going to be inclined to save. Um, so it does take uh, a lot of <laughs> a lot of push. Um, I think mentally and emotionally to uh, to delay an immediate need in the hopes that you would have uh,
0: a margin later. Well, and going back to what you said, it almost sounds like it could be viewed. I don't know if selfish is the right word, but uh, like you're not, you're not providing the immediate need for maybe a relative or something like that. Maybe, maybe, I don't know if that doesn't go into the communal spirit sometimes.
1: Yeah. And that's the beauty of the savings groups. Um, again, like if, you know, as I, when I grew up, I had a savings account and it was in bank of America and it, you know, it was 0.3% return or interest on that. Like if there wasn't a return on these savings, it would make zero sense. Mm. Because the expenses are always going to outlast the income. And mm. so there's no need for savings because you have to cover expenses now. Mm-hmm. The beauty of these savings groups are that they grow mm. at, at a like pretty moderate interest rate. But also that you're doing them communally. Um, so mm. in Rwanda, we had, I think there's 350,000 people in savings groups in Rwanda alone.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Um, and those people are organized into circles of community, you know, neighbors, people, you know, generally they're, they're started within from within churches. Um, And so not only do you have a mechanism for saving, but you have accountability to deal with those challenges um, and you're not going it alone. Mm. So you're not the only one in your, in your community making what would seem like a culturally irrational decision to put money away instead of covering costs that costs now um, because you're doing it alongside your relatives, your
0: fellow church parishioners. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I often have this idea, and I'd love to get your response, that, you know, we often hear that there's a billion barefoot entrepreneurs that are just waiting to start businesses in the in the developing world. Um, you know, kind of the idea being that everyone has an entrepreneurial spirit and we're just not giving them the tools to go about that. Um, but I, I think sometimes that can be a little... Maybe uh, simplistic because when we think about an entrepreneur in the U.S., we think about a major risk taker—somebody who's willing to bet it all—and you know they could go bust or they could make a lot of money. But you know, there's a big difference when you're betting it all and your family could go hungry and maybe starve. Um, it changes your risk appetite. I'm curious your, your thoughts if that—if you see that people are more risk averse in developing countries. I would definitely say that people are, are more risk
1: averse. Um, and I want to, I want to touch on this too. This is somewhat peripheral to what you asked, but um, you know, one of the things that I learned too is that, um, that, you know, I worked for hope international and one of their slogans had to do with, uh, I think it was like something like everyone is an entrepreneur or it wasn't that direct, but um, they ended up changing it because they realized that not everyone is an entrepreneur. Mm. Mm. And um, I would maybe even venture to say that the majority of of people that need loans, especially from savings groups, um, are not necessarily trying to start a business mm. as much as use capital to pay school fees or whatever. In um, microfinance, it's a little bit different. Those are those are slightly larger loans that are business oriented. Um, and I would say that um, the dreams are there for sure. Mm. Um, I had the chance to do a microfinance monitoring and evaluation practice. Yeah. Uh, and we interviewed 500 people who were um, micro-lendees from Burundi. And um, every single one of them had a dream for something. And, and it wasn't necessarily to become a real estate magnate or a, um, you know, a restaurant franchise owner. Right. Um, and I think what we have to realize too is that businesses don't have to have this massive capital injection. Mm. Um, not everyone is trying to buy a year's worth of inventory for a corner store. Right. Um. A lot of times, those obstacles of, of capital are actually pretty small obstacles. Mm. Um, you know, people operate differently in different cultures. And in, in Rwanda and Burundi, um, people have uh this street sense about creating business, um, yeah. and they run entirely different ways. Um, and it's really cool to watch. But the rest, the risk appetite is definitely there. Um, I would say that it's lower because people are risking collateral. They're risking relationships. They're right. risking. Um, their reputation in the neighborhood because, again, these micro-lending groups even are within accountability groups. Right. And uh, it's a zero-sum game. So if you
0: default on your loan, it it impacts people in right. your group. You know, I, I like what you said about how a lot of these investments are very low. I mean, we're not talking doing a $10,000 investment. And In fact, I was reading a, a study. It was in the book Poor Economics, and they were giving us, giving people – grants of $0, $250 and $500 and they showed if you got a grant you were you were more profitable as a business but the difference between giving $250 and $500 there was no statistical difference almost to say like you know we're not we're not saying that everyone has to create like you said a big store like a CVS or something like that it might be something very small and they may not have use for some higher level of capital it might actually be counterproductive is that generally. Yeah. And it depends on the business. And one of the cool things that, um, that the program did in
1: Burundi was that business plans had to be approved by everyone involved. Mm. So if I came forward with a business plan and, um, the capital needs were, you know, absolutely absurd and required, you know, you know, buying a lot of inventory or assets, then that could very easily be vetoed by the group. Um, again, businesses can, can vary across all <laughs> across the entire spectrum sure um you know there was a kid in uh in rwanda that started a business from buying two chickens mm. and um by the time he had kept selling chicks selling eggs breeding the chickens bought a couple of pigs um he had actually just bought a cow and this kid was 10 years old yeah and many of the elders in that village would not even have a cow so Again, it can be as simple as the capital needed to buy a couple of chickens. Um, mm. From a microfinance standpoint, obviously those loans are a little bit bigger. Um, it, can, it can be as simple as leasing a motorcycle. So right. that was a very common business. So you could be a motor taxi. Exactly. Yeah, And so you're paying a, a fee each month um, you know, to actually use the motorcycle. Uh, and that
0: allows you to eventually buy your own motorcycle and maybe hire a few other people. And, I, you know, it's interesting. You you said that Rwanda and Burundi almost have like an intuitive sense for business. I'm curious, you know, I know you have intimate experience in Rwanda, but you've also worked in other places. Like, how do you feel like, like, do you feel like this model is going to work the same in every country? Are there some cultures that are maybe not as apt for this? I mean, I'm, I'm just curious your thoughts. It's definitely
1: not a boilerplate approach. Okay. Um, you know, there are... Countries where some of the, where these principles would apply and work well, um, but again, I keep flip flopping back between savings groups and microfinance. Right, right Some I of know. the principles are the same. Yeah. Um, there was a very large development organization based in Atlanta that um, that tried to start. They called them v- VSLAs, so Village Savings and Loans Accounts. Okay. Um, and it failed miserably hmm. in the U.S. And they were trying to start it in low socioeconomic areas. In the U- In the U.S. Not in, in the U.S. Okay. In Atlanta. Okay. In our own city. Um, and they found that where it did marginally work was among refugee populations. Huh, and so there is something endemic to different cultures that, that allow savings groups and micro-lending, especially when it's interconnected relationally with with your community, allows yeah. that to flourish. But I definitely wouldn't say
0: it's, it's a blanket approach that works. Sure. So it's part of the puzzle, but not the, you know, this isn't going to, it's not going to work in every single scenario and the same in every single scenario. Right. And, uh, and that's part of the issue, you know, people
1: who have a dream of making a, a motorcycle taxi business work, but live in the middle of nowhere where no one uses moto taxis. Right. Um, so it's actually also dependent on geographic locale or what, you know, all these, things. where the market's saturated. So even between Rwanda and Burundi, we saw different, different, you know, business models and different default rates.
0: Um, you know it's not quite the same across all contexts, and you know in terms of these savings groups, I would Im- I imagine there's some sort of education component with microfinance as well. What business topics do you generally find are the most impactful in these environments because it might not be the same as what we're used to in the us Yeah, again, uh, it goes back to the the fact that like
1: what we would consider wise business principles will get completely turned on their head in different cultures, sure. Um, I did do a survey, uh, as part of my fellowship and, uh, one of the open questions in the survey was, um, what kind of, you know, is there any other training that you would like provided? Right. Um, and almost every single person wanted just simple business principles. And I know that's a very generic term. Gotcha. Um, but just management, money management.
0: Um, we're talking about like basic things. I assume like, your business expenses, you need to keep track of that different from your household expenses. You need to keep a ledger. I mean, I'm assuming. Exactly. I'm how assuming. much
1: inventory to buy, how much to forecast out, how right. to do simple accounting, how to hire well. Right. Um, those are
0: those are things that people were absolutely thirsty to learn. Mm. I mean, makes makes a lot of sense. Um, I have, I've always had this one thing in my mind about microloans, and I'd love to see what you think about it, is, you know, we're giving loans and people who... Default on loans. I mean, this is my own bias. I don't know if this is true. Maybe you can assuage me is are often marginal people, you know, the widow, the family who falls on hard times. So we're foreclosing on them or whatnot. I mean, what do you do? Do you find that to be the case? Uh, I mean, if a church wants to get involved in microfinance, are they going to suddenly be foreclosing on the the most marginalized among (laughs) among us? It's a really
1: difficult question, and um, I wish that we had somebody in this interview from Hope who worked directly for the sure. microfinance institutions, because especially during um, early 2020, this was like the question. Mm. You know, with COVID, with government shutdowns all across the world, um, especially where we give out loans. You know, what were
0: what was what was and, to be expected, and if people don't pay back, I mean that. Loses trust, and then maybe nobody pays back.
1: Yeah, and again, that's where the structure of both savings groups and the micro lending groups come into come into account. So I know with um, with our microfinance institution in Burundi called Tarame, um, and the one in Rwanda, there was loan officers, and those loan officers take a very, very relational approach. So they're not just a face behind a computer or um, somebody who quote unquote works at the bank. Um, they're actually invested in these lendees, and so um, you know they they're able to see the warning signs. They're able to see if um, you know if the business owner's on a bad track to not be able to pay this back. Um, and then the other fact of the matter is, you know, in that structure again, you're accountable to all the people sitting across from you in your circle, right? Um, and powerful. so um, there's grace periods for sure, and one of those mechanisms is routine monitoring from the groups and from the loan officers. Um, but there is a, a really tough intersection between
0: um, one person's default affecting the rest of the group, right? And giving grace. It seems so much. It's so interesting how you describe it because it's so different from like a U.S. bank where we think of it as like a top-down approach, and versus here, it's like every little group is almost managing it by itself, and it's really the only. Uh, in my experience, is one of the only ways you can really effectively work in the developing world is to work communally, like almost on a one-on-one group and group basis. Yeah. And that's the beauty of a lot of the developing world
1: um, is is the way that their community looks Mm. is extremely conducive to that kind of accountability. Sure. Um, And even I think if you were to play that out here, I would be much more, uh, on my toes if I, if I took a loan from all your closest (laughs) friends, I mean, goodness, (laughs) my closest friends rather than a bank.
0: Um, right. And and we're a more individualistic culture in general. Oh, for sure. And so it's gotta be even more there. And so it really works well to that extent. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Colton. Um, I know that, uh, you know, it's, it's fun because we've been friends for a long time, but also fun as I get to see my friends become experts in certain areas uh, and to be able to hear their thoughts. Um, So yeah, thanks for joining. Yeah. Thanks so much, Tram. Thank you for listening. Every Wednesday morning, we publish a new narrative from life here. We are simply telling stories as we've seen them in Haiti. But Haiti is a fascinating country with a rich history. And there are many Haitian voices that can tell the story of Haiti in all its facets. And we encourage you to seek them out. As we made this episode, some names may have been changed to protect confidentiality. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends or give us a rating wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about the work of Light from Light in Haiti or to get involved, visit us on the web at lightfromlight.me. Thank you and God bless.